Hi, and welcome to the second chapter, the podcast where Kristen Duffy, the founder and producer behind Slackline Productions, that's me, talks to women who started the second, third, or even fourth or fifth chapter in their lives and careers after the age of 35. If you're enjoying the second chapter, remember to leave us a rating or review. It helps others to find us, and then they can enjoy it too. This week, I'm talking with Lynn Ketty who was a publisher for a major magazine, amongst other things in her career, before finally answering her true calling. Art, both as a painter and a garden photographer. The joys of remote recording mean that this week we had a few technical issues that resulted in less than perfect sound quality. I loved talking with Lynn and thought you'd really enjoy our chat, so I hope you can hear past it. So without further ado, this is my chat with Lynn Ketty. I think once you get used to taking risks, it's so much easier to do it. Because you know that, you know, you're going to find a way out of any problems. Because I've been inventing problems, trust me. You know, this is not this roller coaster of everything's going right all the time. Because things go wrong on a regular basis. I've had a lot of failures, but I just won't, I won't give up. Hi, Lynn. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Kristen. I was wondering, since we are still for a little bit longer on lockdown, what you've been doing on your lockdown morning. Well, I usually get up very early because I have to look after my dog. And then I can't go to sleep again, so I'm usually very tired. (laughs) I've started doing the occasional run, which I hate, by the way. But I just felt I've got to do something to get myself fitter. But I find lots of excuses not to do it. Getting myself organized, checking through emails. And then I will head off to my studio. Right. So we will get into your studio in a bit. I I was introduced to Lynn by the lovely Marcia Tucker, who is a mutual friend and actually interviewed me for the second chapter. I don't know, our third episode ever. Uh, But when Marcia introduced us, I heard that Lynn had started as a career in magazines, which is not exactly true. But let's start there, Lynn. Tell me a bit about your career in the magazine world. Okay. Well, it's sort of in my late 20s, I think. And I had been working at a management consultancy company and one of our clients was IPC magazines. And I love magazines. I, as a child, I loved reading magazines, well, looking at magazines. So I found it very easy to work with them. And I worked on all their women's magazines and I guess for about two years. And then they asked me if I'd be a publisher uh, working with them. And I jumped at the chance <laughs> because working for a management consultancy company was great. I learned a lot about how businesses run and I worked with some really big clients and that was fantastic. But I just didn't feel I wanted to have a career with them. They wanted me to do an MBA and I really didn't want to go back to education. And for me, the creative side of magazines was so exciting. So I jumped so I worked with them for a couple of years and then I moved on to, and I, I was a publisher of magazines like My Guy, which was, uh, I don't know if you've heard of it. it was like, I don't know My Guy. You have to okay. know because that's <laughs> There was a name for those sorts of magazines. I, mean, I can't remember what it was, but basically you had a photographer and you staged scenes and then you had bubbles, speech bubbles coming out. So they told a story. Like a graphic novel kind of thing would be today, but with, with photographs? It was like a cartoon, but real people. Okay. And actually, I just remembered I was asked to be the mother <laughs> in one of the, you know, and I was only about 25. So I was a bit kind of like, really? Am I, am I that old? 
anyway, so that I worked on those and I worked on pop magazines. And then I moved to another company and I worked on uh, Record Mirror, which is another pop magazine at the time. They got bought by another company and I worked there for a bit on. And then um, what happened then? I ended up, oh, that got sold. And I worked there, oh gosh, on film magazines, which was good. Wasn't really my thing. And then the MD said to me, Lynn, we've got an acquisition that we'd like you to work on, and it's called L Decoration. Would you like to be the publisher? And I went, yes, it's my favourite magazine ever. I mean, it was a dream. It was an absolute dream. I bought the very first issue in the UK, and I've still got it. That's how sad I am. And I just, I just loved it. I loved interior decoration. When I was, I think it was when I was in the management consultancy, I did do an, a kind of a, a distance learning interior design course the start of it because I, I you know I loved it I loved all that sort of sort of thing so yeah I was on L Decoration that's when I met Marcia I didn't really realize it but I think she was deeply impressed by the fact that I was working there. it was just to me it was just a job that I loved to do do you know what I mean it was just I think it's interesting because I feel like it's not so typical maybe maybe at the time it was a bit different but now I think it's really I think people have trouble seeing alternative choices for job roles so the fact that you were in management consultancy and even had this opportunity to go into magazines and publishing obviously they saw something in you that was really that was desirable for them but I don't think I think people now tend to say oh you have to be this to be this yeah I see it now because I've got three kids and they're all in the job market and it feels much harder it feels much more restrictive uh whereas I was I understood the magazine didn't understand what a publisher did but I thought yeah I can do that Well, that's my mentality about everything. I mean, I look at lots of job descriptions and think, yeah, I could do that. But I think actually selling the fact that you can do it is a very different thing. And like you say, I think it's really hard now. I don't think people are as open to understanding, which is one of the reasons I'm always interested when I talk to women about their second or third or fourth careers, because making it work is not always, it feels a bit more prescriptive, I think, maybe than it should be sometimes. Much more so now. I think think companies... I just seem to be on tram lines. I think from what I've seen with my kids trying to get jobs, it's, um, yeah, it's much more controlled almost. Yeah, And it kind of means that people can't really be spontaneous and creative. And I think quite often employers are a bit closed in the way they think about how somebody could do a role, which for me, I mean, the reason you say I jumped into this and it was all, it was, you know, it's quite a big jump. I had been working with the company for maybe a year or two years. and they just said to me, we can tell that you love magazines and you understand magazines and you understand the customers because you are one. And I was a massive reader of magazines. And so it was obvious to them. You know, they didn't have to, I didn't even get interviewed. You know, they just said, would you like the job? Yeah, thanks. (laughs) So um, right place, right time, luck, just being fortunate. All of those things probably played a part. But I always think that if you're passionate about something, people can see it. They can see it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, why wouldn't you want somebody to come in that thought that it was, I mean, especially once you got to L, their dream job, because somebody who's working in their dream job is is going to be a better employee, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So your past up to that point, you weren't really where you maybe should have been. <laughs> can I put it that way? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think probably my entire life from leaving school, 
was about trying to get to a place where I wanted to be. I, I mean, when I was a child, I wasn't really back at school. You know, um, my favourite subject was art and sport, and I was good at both of those, and I loved them. And all the rest were kind of like, oh, really, do I have to do that? My dad was a scientist, so I came from a very academic background as a family. And um, I was kind of expected to follow a little bit in that route. I didn't mind science. I was quite good at some of it. And I think that's where it all went a bit wrong because I was quite good at the practical side of things. So I could do, I could do the experiments. And I had really nice drawings of them. You know, you have to draw them up with your exercise book. And I could do great pictures of them. But I didn't really understand the maths or, or some of the stuff that you have to do. So um, I was really keen on doing art. But, of course, I ended up in secondary school at all-girls grammar school, which was like the worst place for me to end up because all my friends up to that point had been boys because they were more fun. Um, we played sport together, you know, I played football in the playground and that kind of thing. And then I had to go to this all-girls school, which was grim, and art was just not really their thing. So I ended up not doing any of the sort of stuff I wanted to do, which was, you know, art O-level, going to do art A-level, none of it, none of it at all. I ended up doing geography biology and chemistry and I didn't really understand any of those so then I had to make a decision about going to university and I remember looking at art foundation courses thinking God, I'd love to do that but I didn't have enough of a portfolio to even try it and also I would have had to have stayed at home for another year and I really didn't like being at home you know I just I'd had enough so I did consider architecture <laughs> For like a nanosecond until I realised it was seven years or something and you had to be good at maths. So that was, okay, that's out. So I ended up doing something which was, which was very practical, which was food science and management. And again, you know, I went along, was at London, had a blast. It was so much fun. Didn't understand the course at all and scraped a GP. It's funny that you say that you thought about architecture because I had that as a moment of in my career journey or my education journey, what can I do that's creative, but, you know, practical? It seemed so practical to me. And I, and I knew a lot of people at the time that were studying architecture and working really hard at it. So I thought, well, if they're working really hard, it must be enjoyable. <laughs> and ironically, I ended up marrying an architect and realizing how horrible of an architect I would have been. So thank God that's not where I went. Yeah. But also, yeah, well, I'm not with him anymore. So that's what I think about architecture. <laughs> but food oh. science, that's, I mean, how did you even... My father was a scientist and there was food science taught at Reading University, which is where he, uh, where he worked. And I thought it was practical. You know, I thought I'd get a job at the end of it. I think when I was doing it, though, we were in, an, in a recession at the time and it was difficult to get jobs. And I think I was just being practical and very boring you know, because it wasn't exciting. Uh, you know, I, when I'd finished it, I absolutely did not work, want to work in the food industry. And I left university, not knowing what I wanted to do, and did a shorthand typing course, <laughs> which is what we kind of did back then to get into, women did, of course, to get into a job, because you could, you could get in as a secretary and then work your way up. That was kind of the route. So I, I did that. It's interesting that you say that because uh, Laura, who I talked with a couple episodes ago, was a scientist and her father was a, is a very famous scientist and she kind of tried to avoid following his, in his footsteps and did anyway. But her thing, one of her dreams she remembers from being little was actually to learn shorthand typing. But 
It's definitely something that, like you said, it was like as a woman, everyone kind of did or was expected to do. Oh, yeah. No, and, and when you think about it now, it's just so crap, isn't it, really? But I was absolutely useless at it, I have to say. I mean, I could sort of write the short and kind of, uh, but I couldn't read it back. It, I worked that one out. I, I got other, I worked, I worked for the Squash Rackets Association and there were all these directors. It was ridiculous. And each one had a secretary. And I had to go to them with my shorthand and say, can you just read this back? Because I can't, I can't write. I can't read it. I don't understand it. So I really wasn't very good at it. I wasn't very good at it. And I ended up in the management consultancy company because I could type. They said, we need somebody to type up reports and we want to train you as a business analyst. And after about, I don't know, three months, the MD just said to me, he was American. It was an American company. He just said, Lynn, you are really not very good at the typing. <laughs> okay, I, I think I can get that. But he said, no, but we, you know, you show real promise as a business analyst. I have no idea how. And I do. I, I, I loved it. I loved business. I legitimately thought for a second you were going to say, I had no idea what business analyst was. <laughs> I probably didn't, to be fair. You know, I mean, I it was just like I went to an agency and I walked in and they said, would you like this job? And I thought, well, I've got to pay the rent. So, yes. But it was a great job. I mean, literally. They were really friendly. There wasn't a lot of, you know, like in a lot of big companies, it's all committee meetings and all that crap. They just used to stand in the middle of the room, all these Americans, and just shout at each other, not in a nice way, discussing things, discussing problems that they're having with the company. And it was just great fun. You know, it was great. I learned so much. And I traveled throughout Europe and a little bit to the States, meeting all these sort of blue chip companies. And, and talking to them about business. I mean, it seems ridiculous thinking about what I do now, but that's what I did then. But I loved it. So going closer to what you do now, but you're at L Decoration. You love it. It's your dream job. What happens next that makes you want to change? Right. By now I've got two kids and I'm with a guy and he lost his job. I had Ryan, my second son. Literally, he was like two weeks old and their father lost his job. And he, he was in publishing as well. And he was looking for other jobs. And he found a job in Bath in publishing. And he sort of said, I'll work in Bath. You work in London. And we'll, we'll buy a place in Reading. And I said, there's no way I'm going to leave my kids in Reading and commute to Bath every day. That's just not going to happen. How long um, commute? It would have been a couple of hours, you know. Fair. On top of a very long day. Yes. Uh, you know, you couldn't just pop back if there was an emergency. That wasn't a, an option. So that that wasn't what we decided to do. So we decided to move to Bath. And my managing director came in to my office when I went back after maternity leave and said to me, Lynn, I want to promote you to publishing director of the um, Home Interest Division. And the brief is that you develop new magazines. That was my dream job. I mean, that was my, and oh, and you can still work four days a week. And I thought, oh, God, what crap timing. And I just said to him, I can't do it, Tom. I can't. We're moving. I've got to leave. That was the last time he spoke to me. Wow. So double painful because you have to leave the job. You've been offered this dream job. And then on top of it, somebody's just like, yeah, no, I'm done with you. Yeah, no, definitely. And he was, he was an extraordinary man, actually. He was a great boss. He was amazing. 
So you make this actual move, house move. Yeah, um, it wasn't too bad. I mean, yeah, I was sorry about the job and I was very sad to leave everybody. But on the other hand, I didn't feel I wanted to bring my children up in London. So we found this lovely house. It was not in Bath, it's outside Bath, but it had the most beautiful views and it had a huge garden. And it was, it was extraordinary, the change between living in London and living down there. It was quite, you know, it was a culture shock because people down here are much more relaxed. Uh, about everything and that was kind of difficult to get used to having been in a fairly busy job you know you know what London's like it's actually now work way worse than it used to when I was there so it did take a long time to get used to that but I think it was looking back it was a great move really no regrets because that move changed my life and at that point are you staying home with the kids as they're quite young or yeah I did for a year I did as we we had to do a lot of work in the house and um, I was sort of getting used to being here. And I remember thinking the most wonderful thing about it was the um, sunset and the sunrises. Because you don't really see much of the sky in London, but you see a lot of sky around here. And I just used to be absolutely gobsmacked every time, you know, I'd look out the window holding one of the kids or whatever when it was getting dark and think, that's just incredible. That is amazing. And um, I was at home for a year. We had this enormous garden, about an acre and a half, and it had a beautiful view, and there was an ancient orchard at the bottom. And and I loved gardening. That that was one of my only creative outlets when I was in my 20s, early 30s. And I started developing this beautiful garden. And um, then a year into that, I thought, well, I can't really stay at home the whole time. I've got to to work, you know. I need to earn money. You know, I, I didn't feel safe not earning money. So I got a job at Future Publishing, um, which wasn't, wasn't my best move. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just put that one down to experience. I was there for a couple of years. Um, I wasn't happy there, really. Just going back to your comment, too, about not feeling safe, not earning money. Was there anything... I don't know. Personally, I know that in my childhood, there was kind of financial ups and downs, and it certainly made me feel really insecure whenever I don't feel financially stable. No, I mean, I came from a very financially stable background. I mean, my father was obsessive about money and making sure that there was always enough money. And he was a great saver. So he, they had a great retirement. For me, I'd given up my job. I'd given up a really, really good job that paid a lot of money. I felt very secure in, and I gave that up for nothing. You know what I mean? I, I, you know, that was it. And uh, my partner was not as supportive as he could have been, let's say. Um, he didn't like me not working. He didn't like the responsibility. Um, I don't think he ever particularly said it, but I could just tell. But he sort of reneged on a few deals that we had as a sort of coming down. I said, look, I think we should get married because I'm giving up everything and I want security. But he that never happened. And so I kind of, in my, probably, I thought, well, I'm going to swear, <laughs> fuck you. I'm going to get a job now because I need to feel secure. I have got kids. And I always felt when push came to shove, I'd be the one who'd have to look after them. So I did. I got a job and it paid well. And I loved the people there. They were, they were great. It just, you know, it just wasn't the right move for me. And so I just saved lots of, as much money as I could. So what finally was kind of the, you know, the impetus to actually say, this is not for me. I'm not going to work here anymore. <laughs> I'm doing something else. Well, I've gone from a company that was very, very up for development and really supportive to a company that 
I worked in the women's bit of it. I'd call it a division, but it, it was like it's all computing, bikes, stuff like that. And then there was cross stitching, which was my bit, which was incredibly, incredible. It was actually the most profitable business I'd worked in. Do you know what I mean? It was so profitable. But the company used it to siphon off money to develop these other things, you know, the computer magazines and all that crap. And it was just soul destroying. You know, it was just soul destroying. And I just, when I first went into publishing, I met all these old, older people in their probably close to retirement, actually, but still in the business. And they used to say, no, you can't do that. That won't work. No, that's not going to work. And it was very depressing hearing that. And I always said to myself, if ever I get like that in my job, I've got to lose because Mm -hmm. that's the killer. And I got like that. You know, the editors would come up and say, hey, Liz, what about if we do this? And I'd say, yeah, you know, we tried that once. It didn't work. And I just heard myself saying it and thinking, Lynn, this is time to go. It's just like you're the wrong person. It's time I've to go. I've heard myself say that, even just on committees or something that I've sat on, you know, oh, we tried that. And I'm like, when did I get so bitter? Yeah. That's like the moment that you kind of go, no, I need, I, I need a different outlook. Yeah, definitely. I'm not sure if it's bitterness. I just think it's kind of weariness. I, you know, I thought, God, no, do we have to go through all that drama again? Whereas this time it might have worked. That's the point. Yeah. You know, you can't give up. And, um, yeah, I just thought, oh, get out of this thing. But I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I had no idea. You know, I was stuck in Bath. In London it would have been different because the opportunities, there's so many more opportunities. But I was stuck in Bath. I thought, what do I do? So how did you figure it out? Well, I'd, okay, so I, I had this garden and I'd spent – I used to spend a lot of time in it and it was looking quite beautiful. And I used to go up really early in the morning and I'd go out there and it was just a magical place to be. And you just look at plants that you planted and it was like five in the morning and the sun was rising and you'd see dew on the on the petals and things like that. And I just thought, my God, this is so beautiful. I bet nobody else is looking at things like this. And I thought to myself, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to become a garden photographer. Which is interesting to me because I, I didn't even know that was really a thing, which is, you know, st- stupidity on my part. Of course, there are photographs of gardens. Somebody has to do it. But, it, you know, if I'm looking at my range of career choices, I don't think, hmm, <laughs> I've always thought about being a garden photographer. <laughs> well, you see, I loved interiors magazines, but I also loved gardens. And I spent, you know, I just used to read books and look at plants and work out what I was going to do with the garden. And it was just an obsession, really. And um, I just felt, okay, so I understand publishing. I've always enjoyed photography as an amateur. I thought, I can do this. So much confidence. I don't know where it came from. I just thought, I can do this. And um, so I handed in my notice, sorted out my kit, which was quite hard because I didn't have any training. Um, But I worked it out. And... um, I just used to, I, I remember meeting this guy at a garden centre who was pinning up a notice, which was sort of saying, I'm a, I'm a, you know, he worked in gardens, he looked after them. And I just said to him, if you find any really nice gardens, would you let me know? Because I, I need to find gardens to photograph. It just so happened that he was the gardener for Jonathan Dimbleby. Right. And um, he said, oh, I'll ask Jonathan. <laughs> so, uh, so he did. And um, Jonathan said, can I meet her? For the benefit of our listeners, can you just say who Jonathan is? He's um, a presenter. He, he's, I think he doesn't do it any longer, but he did um, Question Time. Wasn't No, that was his brother. That's David. He does the thing on Radio 4. And I can't remember what that was called. Yeah, kind of a serious news presenter kind of guy. 
So I knew of him, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I'm not that kind of into all of that stuff. So I wouldn't have had a lot to talk to him about. But he invited me over, I think, basically to check that I wasn't mad, you know, right. <laughs> um, or, you know, or paparazzi or something. I obviously came across as being completely clueless. So he said, you know, come on in. And I said, look, I have to come in at sort of like really early in the morning. And he said, that's fine. Don't worry about it. So I rocked up. It was actually midsummer. So it was June the 21st, 2000. And I've literally only just given up work on like June the 1st. And it was dawn just outside Bath, found his house, it was a beautiful, beautiful house, beautiful setting. And um, his dogs came out barking and I sort of pushed them down and then he looked, was looking out of his bedroom window, <laughs> sort of half clad, saying, um, oh, it's you. Oh, dogs normally bark more than that. And I said, don't worry about it. I'm used to dogs. Don't worry, just go back to bed. So um, I photographed it and, and it got published in the English Garden magazine. At this point, had you been f- into other gardens besides your own, or was it just kind of this luck of the draw with this garden centre? Oh, this was pure luck. The thing about garden photography, there's quite a lot of us, actually. And the thing that magazines really want are they want private gardens that nobody else can get into because they're, they're interesting, you know, and, and people who love gardens just love looking at other people's gardens. So, yeah, I hadn't. it was just luck. It was just pure luck. And I subsequently actually wrote it up as well amazingly. Yeah, I wrote it up as well. It was almost too easy. So once you get published in a magazine like that, is it something where you now have a reputation as a garden photographer and other people start coming to you or you have more access to some of these private gardens? Or, you know, is it like, here, this one was really lucky, but I'm still just scraping my way up? Scraping my way up. It's And probably for the entire time I've done it, other than the fact that you have a reputation, well, there's a huge amount of work that you have to do. I mean... It's interesting, people think, well, one, like you, most people think there's no, not a proper job, really, is it? Um, I didn't say that. I just think about it as a career choice. This is the problem. Once somebody introduces a career choice to me, I'm like, oh, I like photographing, you know, (laughs) flower buds. Maybe I could do that. (laughs) I guess I I had to learn, I had to learn how to do it so that I could produce the right images for the magazine. And photography is just, it's just catching light, really. That's that's what photography is all about. And so I, I learned that uh, just by doing it and working hard at the marketing side and trying to find gardens and, you know, just going, getting into Chelsea Flower Show and press day and things like that all helped. And I knew a few of the editors anyway, so I had a bit of a step up. And I knew how to work with editors because I'd worked with them for 10 years as a publisher. So I guess in that respect, it was easier for me than somebody just coming in, you know, with no background at all. But, I, you know, it's, it's hard work. There's a lot of competition and magazines change all the time. It's a tough business to be in. Lovely, but tough. <laughs> We talked about finances as well. And I mean, obviously, if you're scraping your way, trying to get into magazines and as a reputation as a garden photographer, there must have been challenges even just, you know, making it a, a paid career as opposed to this is something I'm, I'm hoping to do or. Mm. Well, I think um, like about two years in, three years, I realized that my relationship with my partner and my children's father was really, really not going well. He wasn't pulling his way at all. and. I thought that we would, if I didn't do something, we would go bankrupt. So I left him 
and to, you know, the children, obviously, we both continue to look after the children. But that was a pretty scary move <laughs> because um, I think when I, I moved into our new house, which was completely different. I mean, it was heartbreaking leaving the old house, the garden, really. I think I had £6,000 to my name and I hadn't really been able to do a lot of work throughout the breakup. And so I, things had been going really well, but it all came to a bit of a halt. And then somebody I remember at Chelsea Flash and going there, and one of the magazine editors said to me, oh, I didn't realise she was still doing this, you know, and I'm thinking, shit, that was, that's quite a big, big impact it had. So, yes, it was always tough, but I, I think you just have the resources to do it. You just find the resource to do it. I, don't, I can't explain it. There were some months when I think, oh, I don't Am I going to be able to make all the you know payments for everything? But you just find a way. And I had a I have a very good friend who was in a kind of a not in she was in a similar situation in that she was just her and her kids and she had a business that she was running and said, Yeah, I have months like that then. But you know, somehow you always pull it out of the bag. I think it's just magic, to be honest. Somebody's looking after me somewhere. And twice you did say, Oh, I can do that. I mean, you yeah. said it about the other jobs and things. So obviously somewhere You've got that in in you that you just kind of, why not? I can do that. Marjorie Scardino. She was our, in one of the places I worked, she was the CEO or whatever. And uh, she, I did a presentation and she saw it. And she just said, that girl's got balls. <laughs> I haven't, by the way. We need a different description for we that. We do need a different description. Because, it's what? just so crap compared to men. Because quite honestly... Of all the people I've worked with, the women have been more interesting and kind of flexible, I think. And there's a great thing about being tough, but I I do think, and this is, of course, a gender stereotype. So I'm saying we shouldn't be compared to men and then I'm going to make a gender stereotype of my own. But I've noticed that managerial styles that can mix what is traditionally masculine and traditionally feminine and have a bit more empathy and, you know, tough, but caring, if you want to use that word, they're always kind of better managers. (laughs) Yeah, I... Yeah, I mean, I had to manage. I, in fact, one of the reasons I gave up publishing was I got sick of managing people because it's, it's hard work because I was stuck between editorial people who I loved because they were the creative and the board who were all boring people. And I, I didn't like that. I didn't like, you know, I didn't like the pressure from the board to make money and having to work with creatives who were being creative. And the best way to make money is just to let them do their thing. You know what I mean? That was the never-ending debate or argument, I guess, when I was in fashion, because I worked in very corporate fashion design. And we had our merchandising team, who, of course, were always going back to last year's numbers, which is fair, because that's their job. But our job as creatives and designers was always like, what can we do that's new? What's the trends? What can we push? What's interesting? And we did find that, you know, maybe one season going back to it was okay because it was like, yes, our, we know our customer loves this. But then if they kept driving that, our customer was like, come on, we're bored. We need something yeah. new. So you're yeah. right. The Letting creatives do their job, usually kind of, <laughs> it, they're, they're there for a reason. Yeah. So I can see the frustration there. Yeah. Yeah, it was frustrating. Anyway, that was a tangent, but (laughs) (laughs) that was my own tangent. But after nine years of garden photography, this art, I mean, obviously garden photography is an art in and of itself, but this art background, this art desire that you've been sort of suppressing your whole life comes to the surface. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, because I've spoken, I'm not really in touch with that many people from when I was at university, which is a bit of a shame, but one or two that I am in touch with said I always used to be drawing in lectures 
I don't remember that. But, you know, I obviously wasn't paying much attention. Yeah, well, I always drew. I loved drawing and I loved painting and I loved making things when I was younger. I mean, just loved all of, you know, even to this day, I will quite happily sit down and make a cushion. And I just love all of that. And that's why I feel comfortable. So all throughout that time, I would occasionally pick up a paintbrush and do a bit of painting or I did some stained glass and all sorts of just do something to have, look, keep that little spark alive. And then one day I just thought, I don't know where it came from, but I just thought, do you know, I've just got to start painting. I kept on finding myself thinking, so I go back to university and I can't afford to do that. How do I do How am I going to do this? And I picked up our local newspaper, which I don't often read, and there was this tiny little thing in the news section about a, an art group in Bratton, which is a village down the road. And I looked at that and I thought, I'm going to do that. That's all I'm going to do. It's serendipity. I feel like I've heard this story so many times in different forms. You know, like you said, going into the garden center and there's this guy that just happens to get you into your first big garden photography job. And then a newspaper that you typically don't read, but there's, here's an art group. Oh, exactly what I was looking for. Yeah, whether it's synchronicity or whatever it is, but lots of interesting moments. We probably all have them, you know, it's just that you miss them if you're not looking for them. Yeah, I think that's really important to just just take a leap of faith. And honestly, I just looked at it and I said, that's it. And I told a few people, people I worked with actually. And well, one one person particularly just said, Don't do it. Don't do it. You haven't got time. And I just thought, screw you. You know what I mean? I'm gonna do this. I will find time to do this. And I did, and I went along and the guy who ran it, I'm still friends with to this day. He was a lovely guy. He's a painter and it was so much fun. I can't tell you how much fun it was because I just felt somebody ought to write a sitcom about this group of people <laughs> because they were just these classic characters. And I just, I mean, I love the painting. Don't get me wrong, painting is great. But I just loved going along and watching these, these people talking. I mean, honestly, if I could write, I'd write a sitcom. About I was going to say, anyway. I know a lot of writers. I can put you in touch. You guys. Oh my God, <laughs> honestly, honestly. I just, sometimes I just do that. I just think, it was hilarious but I loved it and I can't tell you the absolute joy I felt when I kind of got it it was watercolor and I've never really been taught a lot of you know most people aren't really taught anything I mean there might be now but it certainly wasn't when I was in school so I was taught more how to do it and I you know I was painting what I thought quite decent painting and I was just so joyful. I cannot tell you how joyful I was. Brilliant to start with watercolor as well, because I mean, I've done some painting, but my dad did quite a lot of painting and he would say, learn watercolors, because if you could do that. <laughs> There's no hiding with a watercolor. You know, if you make a mistake, that's it. It's there forever. Most people will be hearing this and not seeing it, but I'm looking around and seeing all this beauty behind you. Paintings that I'm assuming that you've done, but that also have been influenced by gardens. And you've definitely taken your photography work into your painting as well. Yeah, although I kept them really separate for a long time. I felt it's really strange. People kind of pigeonhole you as a photographer. And if you're a photographer, you can't be an artist. And also photography is an art. I heard that so many times. That's all bollocks, by the way. Photography is art singing's art, gardening's art, cookery's art. There's art in a lot of things that we do that are creative. And it's only really, you know, in the last year, two years, that I've started to really recognise that they are both equally important and they both 
work together. I mean, the photographers had a huge impact on my art. Massive, absolutely massive. I mean, a lot of my paintings, I mean, the one just there that you can see there, that was from kind of memory and imagination and of years and years of looking at those colours in gardens. And that's how that was painted. Uh, and a lot of my work is like that. And like you said, light is so important in photography. And of course, with painting, composition and light and colour, all the things that you're looking at, I'm sure, when you're looking at a garden, they come into play once you sit down to do a painting. Um, it's interesting. I think with photography, composition is really, really important to make a good photograph, as well as light. I mean, light is the overriding thing because, you know, photography is literally just catching light. And it's, it's interesting, I bought the sort of composition side into painting, but there's a lot of painters who find, because you seem to be able to get away with worse composition in painting. I probably shouldn't say that. Maybe I don't I'm know where I'm going with this. but <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm saying that because I do find that paintings that, I don't know, there's, there's an artist, I can't think of her name right now, uh, but she does these kind of jungle scenes with animals and people that all kind of pile up on each other. But the way she puts these compositions together is amazing because it fills, everything's filled up with something you want to look at. And I know when I've sat down to do something, I'm like, right, I can paint a vase with a flower in it. <laughs> so, and and I think what I love is when I see these, and you know, looking at some of your work that it's so layered. And so to me, good composition makes it interesting yeah absolutely absolutely of course it does I I mean don't get me wrong I that's what I brought in if you like the photography side of things but I think the painting side of it yeah when you when I paint I just forget I don't you just completely live in the moment yeah if there's anyone out there who wants to is anxious or wants to understand mindfulness just start painting honestly it's just you just completely channel yourself and just work. You know, time is just not concept at all anymore. So as far as now, do people consider you an artist painter? Do they consider you a photographer? How are you known in the world these days? <laughs> well, I call myself a photographer and I call myself an artist. That's what I do. Uh yeah, the people in my magazine world, which I'm still part of, they still know me as a photographer. They also know me as an artist. And yeah, they like it. Do you know, they, they kind of, they, they, I think they like that. They're supportive. There are some people in the, probably people I've known, <laughs> have been they're like, oh yeah, she calls herself an artist. <laughs> and I think, well, I am. Do you know? <laughs> and what's, what makes you a professional artist? I just think the fact is that I do it and I sell my work and, and I want to continue doing it and I want to continue learning how to do it better. All of it, not just the painting, but marketing myself and everything, you know, because there's so much to learn. Most creative fields tend to be more self-employed type fields. You know, they tend to be, you might have an agent or you might have a manager or you might, you know, there's a lot of different ways that it works. But if we all waited for the permission to call ourselves what our creative fields are, you know, we would never be able to call ourselves what we actually are. I, yeah, for a long time, I felt as though I couldn't say that because I probably hadn't gone up the right, gone, you know, got here the right route. You know, I hadn't been to art school, hadn't done all of that stuff. But, you know, I've worked hard at this, all of it. <laughs> and, you know, stuff that I did when I was a publisher and even before that has all helped in what I'm doing now. All of it has helped. You know, I don't regret any of it at all. 
Yeah, it kind of brings me back to what I was saying about people not not understanding that a journey can lead you to be qualified for something <laughs> that maybe it doesn't look like on paper you have the qualifications for. This is fresh to mind for me because I'm, you know, I've I've got this sort of multi-career thing going on and it's sort of like who do you call what do you call yourself anymore? But why can't you be a photographer and and you know, a photographer and artist and your journey has certainly led you to that point. Yeah, and it's interesting. I I did this little thing on Instagram and I just very short praise of what we just talked about. And I got these people who've known me for years <laughs> messaging me saying, and I didn't realize you did all that. And it's, I just don't talk about it anymore. You know I mean, I mean, my kids know it all, don't they? And they're sick of it. But yeah, I mean, it's like Marcia. I don't, it was interesting that she came in at the point when I was a publisher at L Decoration. And I guess that's pretty much when we met, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so I probably never talked to her about anything else because we were both young mums. What did we talk about? Our kids, probably. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Very true. <laughs> Probably what we talked about. I ask always for someone to bring a quote, and you told me that you didn't have what is traditionally a quote, but I really loved what you had said to me. So I'd love for you to share that because I kind of feel like it goes in with what you were saying about this path. Yeah, I love quotes, by the way. I absolutely adore them. Um, okay. I always but, to be asking for them, but I don't care. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Everybody loves quotes. I think they're fantastic. No, I, when I was in my 20s and I was working as a business analyst, so this was the first job. I was looking for a book, and it was, I was in Hampstead, actually. I remember Hampstead High Street, and there was a bookshop, and I went in, and this woman said to me, you know, can I help you? And I said, well, I'm looking for a book to read for the holiday or something. And she said, why don't you read this book? We've just got it in. It's called The Chamomile Lawn. And I said, okay. And she said, look, it's quite interesting, because the author is Mary Wesley, and she's, um, she's 65, and this is her first book. Uh, and it's it's a bestseller, so why don't you read it? And so I did, and I just then I got hooked on Mary Wesley, and I don't know how many books she did, probably nine, ten. I don't I don't remember, but I read every single one of them, and I just thought, you know what? If you can do this at sixty five, there's hope for all of us, <laughs> because there's no time to stop. You know, don't think I'm going to retire, and you just retire. You can always do something. You can always just keep going. Yeah, because people talk about retirement as like, I'll have time to whatever. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily... Actually, I spoke with a woman who retired so that she could become a filmmaker. And that's what she's doing. And it's because she had a plan. You know, once she decided she wanted to do it, it was, I'm going to spend the last year of my working life learning more and becoming ready to make this film. And I think that's the kind of the, the, the potential problem with the idea of retirement is if we just think, oh, I'll have time to whatever, and then not make a plan for it. Whereas, you know, if this woman at 65 started writing and realized it was her thing. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I'm, I don't think I'll ever retire. Frankly, I'm, I may not take as many, I mean, garden photography is quite hard work because you're schlepping around a lot of equipment and it's quite heavy and you're up and down and all this, but so I probably won't be doing that until, you know, I'm in my eighties or whatever, but I can't see myself giving up art. You know, I'll probably be painting until I drop dead. And why would you? Because yeah. like you said, it's not something where you're, you necessarily have to schlep a lot of heavy equipment. So, if, and it's a fresh new career. So if you do it for the amount of time that would be a normal career, you have you have tons of time to do it. <laughs> well, I think probably if I'd done it, started, started it when I was a child and carried on with it, I'd still be doing it now. Honestly, it's in my, if you 
break me in half. You'd have a paintbrush running through me, to be honest. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) So what's next? I started out with asking about your lockdown mornings. I'm going to the studio. have a lovely, I'm very, very fortunate. Another lucky thing, actually. When my husband, my Joe, and I decided to move to Froome, which is a really lovely town in Somerset, um, the house that we moved to, although it's quite a big house, it doesn't really have a place for a studio. So he said, go see if you can find a studio. So I found this place called the Silk Mill, and um, it's just an absolutely gorgeous place. <laughs> and it's got just the right vibe to be creative. It's just relaxing and beautiful. And so I just go in there. It's my second home. I can switch off from the whole, I mean, throughout lockdown, it was just a godsend, just a godsend to go there. I don't even know what I would do in it, but I feel like it's my dream to have a studio. (laughs) Like I said, I've done a little painting. I don't know if I would just go in and suddenly discover something. Oh, I'm a sculptor, actually. I don't know. But I just, the concept of a studio is so lovely. Well, it's, yeah, and it's kind of just your place, but it's all starting to sort of open up. We're planning a uh, in the in the studio that we've created a collective and we're going to put on a show in July. So that's really exciting. I'm doing something in May with an, a load of artists in Wiltshire and I'm exhibiting in this lovely old barn because you can do that down here. <laughs> we have all these lovely buildings that you can do. I was going to say the studio, the old barn, you're, you're really selling me on Yeah, no, it's an old... It's, it's seriously gorgeous. It's an old tithe barn. I'm not quite sure how good the paintings are going to look against these old old walls, but, but it's a lovely place. That's in May and July. And then after that, I'll be just getting... seeing where we are with COVID, to be honest. I think we all will. Yeah. Well, on that note, I think I just want to say thank you very much for joining me. It's been really interesting to hear about your, your creative path and your journey. The madness. <laughs> <laughs> I love the madness. What's life without the madness? Right? Absolutely, completely. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. And yes, I look forward to seeing your work hopefully in person sometime. Yeah, come down. Got a spare room? <laughs> oh, well, you all heard it first <laughs> when I suddenly show up. <laughs> no, it's a nice place to visit. Definitely. Thank you very much, Lynn. Thanks again for listening. The second chapter is just getting started, so your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.